Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Eli Confer, filling in for Rabbi Avi Killip. Many people have strong associations with Avinu Malkenu and the High Holidays. Today, we're listening to one of my lectures, Rediscovering the Machser, the Deeper Meaning of Avinu Malkenu, to learn about the surprising origins of the prayer, the personal dynamics that are in it, and how it might relate to our own process of tshuva. Let's listen in. Today we're going to look at another prayer that is deeply associated with the High Holidays, although not limited to the High Holidays, which is uh, Avinu Malkenu. Just a word sort of structurally about Avinu Malkenu before we dive into the specifics. And as we're going to get to see a story about the writing of this prayer, which is going to hopefully add to our depth of understanding of what the message of the prayer is and how we might experience it on High Holidays that Avinu Malkenu comes in the High Holiday Liturgy after you finish reciting the Amida. So it comes multiple times, depending on how many times you recite the Amida. It's not recited on Shabbat. We'll see one potential reason why that is. A litany, we're going we're gonna to look at it in just a moment, a, a litany, that is to say sort of a repetitive nature liturgical work where the words Avinu Malkenu are repeated at the beginning of every line. And the Hebrew is relatively simple, and perhaps for some of those reasons, that's why it's a popular prayer. There's also the, the melodies that some of us know for some of the lines, but also, you know, you get, you get a refund if you don't get to hear those melodies at, uh, at your high holiday service. And as we're going to see, there's some, some, um, some deeper associations with why we recite this prayer after the Amida and why we recite it on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and all that is going to sort of really try to help us understand what's going on in this prayer. So what I'm, I'm going to actually start from the present, uh, which is to say the form of, of Avinu Malkina that we will encounter in the in the Mahser. Uh, also to say as a, as a warning, I'm going to show you the Ashkenazi version, which is the longest version of Avinu Malkina. It's got 44 different lines. We're not going to look at each line, line by line, but we're going to look at some of the overview there. Uh, if you're from other traditions, they're shorter than Ashkenaz which is typical in some ways beyond Avinu Malkenu. Uh, and when we get to the story of the writing of the prayer, you're going to see it was the shortest of all in the Talmud. Um, so we've really gone a very far distance from its original length. And along the way, sort of throughout Jewish history, adding on more, um, more lines and uh, more opportunities to call God Avinu Malkenu. Um, that's sort of, sort of where, we, where we move. Okay, so... Just to start off, like, where do you begin on this whole list of requests uh, or admissions or, you know, some combination of the two that we see in, in this prayer? Avinu Malkenu, Hatanu Lepanecha, our father, our king, we have sinned before you. Now, that's sort of a powerful place to start, especially related to uh, high holidays, also on fast days, which were associated with a variety of sins. As we're going to see, that's not the original opening to the prayer. Um, the original opening to the prayer is the second line, Avinu Malkenu, in Lanu Melech Ela'ata, Avinu Malkenu, we have no king but you, which sort of re-emphasizes the word Malkenu with the word Melech, and uh, as sort of like a relational situator, I would say, uh, you know, our father, our king, we have no king but you, that's the opening line, but it's preceded now by the line, Chatanu Lefanach, we have sinned before you which, you know, is an instinct, it is a religious instinct, certainly on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, to admit our sins. Uh, in the old land of Israel tradition, when people would wake up in the morning, the first thing they would say, we now say, which is a relatively recent prayer innovation, first shows up in 1599, like last Tuesday, you know, in terms of liturgical history. But in the old Israel tradition, people would wake up in the morning and they would say, Chatati, I sinned. That was the first thing out of your mouth. So there is some orientation to starting off a prayer, especially on high holidays with we have sinned before you. But I'm, I'm saying that that's not the original place in which uh, the prayer started. And we're going to see how that how that shows up in the original story. OK, so there's a lot of different lines here. Again, the Hebrew is relatively simple, like Avinu Malkinu, Chadesh Aleinu Shana Tova, may you renew for us a good year. Right. These are, you know relatively easy to understand requests, uh, you know, some of them that seemed kind of quaint and old-fashioned until COVID hit, right? Avinu Malkenu, Kale Dever, you know, stop the plague, uh, end, the, end the plague. Dever, you know, is one of the 10 plagues from uh, the story of 
of the exodus that we usually associate with cattle disease, but become to, to represent the larger, larger sort of general category for plague. Um, you have another version of that, Avinu Malkeinu, prevent uh, a pestilence, prevent a plague from your, uh, from your inheritance, from your people. Actually, the old version of that line didn't say means to prevent. It didn't say to prevent the, the plague, but rather it said, Atsor, stop the plague. Uh, and then I saw Sidor commentators, this is going back 150 years, say, well, why should we ask God to stop the plague? Like, there is no plague. Let's just ask God to prevent the plague. But in this year, I, I give you permission to say, Atsor, stop the plague. There's other aspects to the litany here that you'll see that are resonant with the weekday Amida. Some of you have learned with me the, the weekday Amida um, blessing by blessing that we did last year. So you're going to see a lot of overlapping language between some of the lines of Avinu Malkenu and some of the blessings in the weekday Amida. You can see your Slach Umechal, which is Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have we have committed a crime. That's the uh, that's the, the the blessing in the weekday Amida, and it's sort of like truncated here and and uh, and headlined in just Avinu Malkenu Slach Machal the Chol Forgive and pardon all our sins, and you're going to see some of that. Uh, that language from the weekday Amida is um, is found throughout Avinu Malkeinu Hachazirenu B'Tshuval Shleimalafanecha, which is the line that we say Harotzeh B'Tshuval asking God for forgiveness, which also has Avinu Malkeinu in the weekday Amida, right? When we say Hashivenu Avinu B'Toratecha, return us our Father to your Torah, B'Karvenu Malkeinu L'Avoratecha, and draw us near our King to your service. Hachazirenu B'Tshuval Shleimalafanecha, return us in a full tshuva before you. So, so again, you're seeing little hints from the weekday Amida, shlach rifuah, that's the rifuah blessing, the blessing for healing that we have in the weekday Amida. And as you move on through the Avinu Malkeinu litany, you're going to see other, other resonances from the weekday Amida, the Geula, the redemption, parnasavachalkala, which is, you know, your sustenance, that's blessing number nine. Michila, a popular one you have again. Hatzmach lanu Yeshua, that's matzmiach karen Yeshua, asking God to sprout the, the redemption and the salvation. So you have some overlap with the weekday Amida, and perhaps that's why we don't say Avinu Malkeinu on Shabbat, uh, because there's too much of a sort of weekday feel to Avinu Malkeinu uh, that's wrapped up in these sort of overlapping uh, languages with the, with the weekday Amida. Let's just look at a few more. Shema Koleinu, also a weekday uh, blessing, eight ratzon, that's blessing number 16. Then you get towards the end, you get some lines that were added. Again, this is the long version from Ashkenaz. In Ashkenaz, there were a lot of crusades and pogroms that, uh, you know, unfortunately are weaved through the history. And so they add lines specifically for that. Asay Laman, I want you, God, act on behalf of those who went through fire and water in order to sanctify your name, sanctifying God's name in a martyrdom situation. Um, Avenge the blood of your uh, that was spilt of your servant. So, so these were added. At least the theory goes they're added after these these attacks on Jews as a people. And then towards the end, we get the line that is usually sung: "Avinu Malkenu, Chonenu Vanenu, Kien Banu Masim, Right, that's the one that we sing. That's the one that uh, it's mentioned in the Tachanun service. So, Chonenu. Chain is God's grace, and we're asking for God to grace us with forgiveness, even though we don't have any deeds. In other words, we're not throwing ourselves, we're not making an argument that we are innocent, but rather we're throwing ourselves on the mercy of the court. Even though we have sinned, please grace us, give us, grant us for nothing forgiveness. So that's, the again, the 44-line version of Avinu Malkenu. You have other traditions, like once you get a prayer that expands uh, and elongates in different traditions, you're also going to have different lines that don't show up in Ashkenaz, show up in other versions. This is an old French uh, uh, Maxor, um, which is preserved in Maxor Vitri, which is the student of Rashi. So we see there, again, very simple Hebrew, Avinu Malkenu, Kodvenu Masei from Mizonot, our father, our king, inscribe us in the book of food. Avinu Malkinu Kodvenu Basefer Rifuot, inscribe us in the book of health. Avinu Malkinu Kodvenu Basefer Shalom, inscribe us in the book of peace. So I like these lines, even though we don't say them in the standard Ashkenaz version, but just to show you some of the variety that we have here. And again, the simplicity of the request and the almost plaintive nature of the request is preserved here. 
Daniel saying, why are we re repeating all the blessings of the Amida? Don't repeat enough already. And David saying, well, maybe we added these, you know, maybe it went the other direction. Uh, yes, it's definitely possible that it went the other direction. We really, we really don't know. I mean, liturgical history is very, very murky. Possible they were drawn from Amida Malkinu. My gut tells me it went the other way, just because the textual traditions of the weekday Amida seem to be older, but we don't really know for sure. Um, and in terms of why, why are we repeating things, it's like, you know, once you've got a winner, like Slafa Michal, forgive and pardon us, you know, why not keep saying it, especially Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and, uh, you know, the Kaddish, other things that people connect to, they like to repeat. And uh, even though some of us who are watching the Times sometimes think that we can make some edits, you know, your edit is my beloved prayer. And so, you know, it's hard to make those judgments here. Okay, I, I want to um, take us to the story element of the writing of this prayer. It's also going to just strengthen, I think, some of the, the scratching our head around how long this prayer got when we see how short it is. And, and almost the original style of it was, was in some ways meant to be short. That's what we're going to sort of play out here as we explore this together. So I'm going to give you a little background to the story. The story is, is, is a great Talmudic story because it comes in the way that stories often come in the Talmud, which is to say, to illustrate a law by pointing out the ways in which the law is not as simple as it seems in the law book. So sometimes what you'll have, you know, is a, a statement of here's what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And then you'll get in the Talmud a story that makes that more nuanced. And that's what we're going to have here. So let me just pregame the law for us for a second. The law that we're going to look at is what are you supposed to do in a situation of drought? That is to say, the rainy season is almost upon us. Those of us who experienced the, the hurricane yesterday, it was definitely upon us in the United States. But in, in the land of Israel, it really doesn't rain until Sukkot. That's when you start asking for the rain. And what happens if the rain doesn't come, of course, the rain is the main source of your food. And so a drought is not just an in inconvenience. It's, it's really a main threat to your survival. So you pray for rain on Sukkot. What happens if the rain doesn't come? And it's not just that it's not coming in October or November. What if it even gets to December and January uh, and you haven't seen any rain and you're really in for a very tough year agriculturally? What are you supposed to do? So the law is going to tell us two things. One is plan A is to declare a set of fasts. Um, you're going to fast, and, and this is all preserved in the tractate Ta'anit, in the tractate that is called fast, fasting, which are fasts that are declared as a result of a drought. So plan A is to, is to set up a series of fasts, and they run Monday, Thursday, the sort of public market days. So Monday, Thursday, Monday, Thursday, you run through a series of fasts until the rain comes. Now, let's say plan A doesn't work, and you run through all those fasts. There are actually 13 fasts Monday, Thursday, Monday, Thursday, that you're supposed to run through, which takes you a number of weeks into, uh, into the emergency zone of the winter, let's say there's still no rain, there's still no drought, uh, the drought continues, what are you supposed to do? That's when you're supposed to say, plan B, a specific Amida that's additional to the weekday Amida. The regular weekday Amida in those days had 18 blessings. You're supposed to add another six blessings that are tied to the request for rain. And so uh, that's the law, okay? So plan A doesn't work, which is to say, let's fast and then the rain will come. Try plan B, which is let's pray a, a special Amida and then the rain will come. What the law doesn't tell you is what happens if plan A and plan B fail. And that's what we're gonna pick up uh, in the story itself. This is what you're supposed to do to set up the Amida, that the plan B, the, the fasting has not worked. And so we're gonna do the Amida version of it. Amdu bitfila. They stood up in prayer to say the Amida. And what happens? They bring before the ark, which is the technical term for how you lead the Amida. They stand before the ark, a zakain, an elder, a leader of the community. What is the, uh, the, the experience of this elder? Someone who has children, but his house is empty, right? He's got kids, but he's got mouths to feed, but no food to give them. That's the, the person that you want to stand up to recite the Amida. Why? So that his heart will be wholly devoted to the Amida. And then they tell us technically, um, he says before them, 24 blessings, 18 that are recited every day and add to them six, the six, six that are special for the fast. Okay, so that's the law. Now we're going to get to the story, uh, which unpacks the situation where the law isn't quite working. We're actually going to get two stories in quick succession. 
from the Babylonian Talmud, and then we're going to look at a story in the Jerusalem Talmud. So let's look at the Babylonian Talmud here. Ma said Rebbe Eliezer. There's a story about Rebbe Eliezer. We're going to get to who he is in just a minute. Rebbe Eliezer, declared 13 fasts for the public, but the rain never came, right? This is the full cycle of plan A. Plan A says, set up fasts in public Monday, Thursday, Monday, Thursday, run through it, and that's when the rain will come. Rebbe Eliezer does it, no rain comes. Now comes the, the plot. But Afrona, at the end, it's not clear exactly at the end of what, Talmudic stories are famously uh, pithy. At the end, but let's say at the end of these fasts, the public was getting ready, was beginning to leave. Where were they? Presumably they were gathered together to wait out the end of this fast. They're, the fast isn't working. There's no rain that's coming. And so they start to go. Rabbi Eliezer says to them, have you prepared graves for yourselves? Have you gotten, you're going to die. Have you gotten ready to die? He says to them, and indeed that's true, right? No rain means no food means that's it. What happens as a result? The whole nation bursts into tears. The rain, the rain comes down. Okay. So in this short story, you have the, the legal prescription doesn't work. The people are leaving. The fast is over. And then Rabbi Ezra says three words that seem to trigger. We don't exactly know the force of those words. Like, was it a, a critique? Like, you know, you're going to die. You know, I, I can't believe you didn't take this seriously. Or was it just, I'm reporting to you what's going to happen. You're going to die. Get ready. Um, whatever it is, it causes the people to have an emotional response in which they cry. And the crying, the tears below, influence the sort of heavenly uh, water, the heavenly rains, the tears above, and the rain comes. Okay, so that's story number one. Now, this is connected to the following story, which is going to give us Avinu Malkenu, uh, and it's connected by this word shuv again. So another story, another story, Maaseh Rebbe Eliezer. So we have another story with Rebbe Eliezer, and what happens? So he, he goes before the ark, that is to say, he is leading the Amida. He says 24 blessings. That's the, what we saw in the law. In the Mishnah, you're supposed to say the regular 18 plus another six. So he does the 24, uh, the 24 blessings. He's not answered. Okay. There's no response to his following the rules. Now, what happens? Yarad Rebbe Akiva Acharav. So Rebbe Akiva comes down after Rebbe Eliezer. That is to say, Rebbe Akiva, in the same idiom of leading the Amida, he's Yoreid, he goes down. That is to say, he takes the leadership position of prayer. Ve'amar, and what does he say? He says, now I'm going to read to you without the brackets. In the brackets were added in later versions of the Talmud. But the original Talmudic version read without the bracket. So let's just read that. Avinu Malkeinu, ein lanu melach ela'ata. Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king. We have no king but you. Avinu Malkeinu, rachem aleinu. Our father, our king, have mercy on us. Okay? That's it. 11 words that Rabbi Akiva says. What happens? V'yardu gishamim. And the rain falls. Okay, so there's something about Avinu Malkenu. This was a spontaneous prayer that is innovated in the moment by Rabbi Akiva after the Amida that was prescribed has concluded and there's no result to the plan B. So Rabbi Akiva comes up with a plan C, which is reciting Avinu Malkenu, which he makes up in the moment and it works. Okay, so that's the the just sort of original locus of Avinu Malkenu and, and, and bringing this, we're going to finish the story and get the plot because the plot is going to thicken, but just to sort of bring it into the, you know, our experience of the prayers on high holidays, um, you know, Avinu Malkenu comes at the end of the Amida for a reason, because originally in the Talmud, when it was said for the first time by Rabbi Akiva, it was also said after the Amida, implied the Amida didn't work. And now we're going to try something else, and maybe that will work. And that's sort of, I think, a little bit of the underlying message of Abhinav Malkinu as it appears in our Mahsar today, which is to say, we spent a lot of time on the Amida in this service. I'm not sure it totally worked. Let's try Plan C also. Now, the irony, of course, today is that it's 
nowhere near spontaneous, right? There's nothing spontaneous about Avinu Malkenu. You know it's on page 196 and you've been counting, counting down the pages until you get there. So you know it's coming. What role it plays in the service is meant to be this placeholder of Yamina is the fixed text that we've said, but let's try something else, something new, something different, something more from the heart, perhaps. And that's going to actually get us to the other side of, of where we need to be. So on high holidays, it's about forgiveness. On the fast, it's about the rain. But rain and forgiveness in, in God language are more or less the same. And so you could see how easily it gets applied to the, the, the services in which we're asking God for forgiveness. Okay, now let's get the rest of the story because the plot thickens. Now remember, our first character who failed at bringing the rain was Rabbi Eliezer. And our second character who did bring the rain is Rabbi Akiva. What's the relationship between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva? Well, the first thing to note is that Rabbi Eliezer is the teacher of Rabbi Akiva. Let's say if you're just sort of following the generations of the rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua were sort of the leaders of their generation. Rabbi Akiva was a student. And you remember, he comes late to learning. He doesn't even start learning according to one, te- one tale that He's 40 years old before he starts learning. So he's the student and that just adds to the drama. Can you imagine? Like, imagine how this happens. You know, you're on the equivalent of, uh, of, of Yom Kippur. You know, you're on this public fast day. Everybody's gathered in. They're terrified. The, the rain isn't coming. And all of a sudden, the teacher goes up. The Zakane goes up to do it. Nothing happens. His student, the young Turk, jumps up, says this new spontaneous prayer on his own. And it worked, right? So that's like a, a crazy, a crazy thing that just happened. What happens as a result of this? The Rabbanan seem to complain or to shout, but as we'll see from the context, it seems that they are critiquing Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer was the, the first guy in the in, in the plot who failed, the teacher. So the assembled rabbis are just sort of you know complaining against him, shouting against him. What happens? Yatsta batkol bamra, a heavenly voice comes out and says, Lo It's not because this one is greater than that one. It's not because Rabbi Akiva is greater than Rabbi Eliezer, but rather, Ella shezema avir al-midotav, avir al-midotav. So why, why did it work for Rabbi Akiva? Because Rabbi Akiva is ma'avir al-midotav. I translated here as, passes over his midot, which is not a translation, his midot, his character aspects. But as we're going to see, midotav is not really the way we think of a midah, like a midah is an attribute, like the 13, sorry, midot, the 13 attributes of God, which seems to have a positive nature to it. Whatever midah here is, it's not a positive thing. Rabbi Akiva is able to pass over that. And Rabbi Eliezer is He's not able to pass over the, the, the midot. That's part of what we're going to have to unpack here. Rabbi Akiva gets the job done. People complain about Rabbi Eliezer. A heavenly voice comes out and says, let me just tell you the difference between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer. It was because Rabbi Akiva is able to He's able to pass over his midot. And Rabbi Eliezer isn't able to pass over his midot. Okay. Daniel's connecting us, right? All the purple people burst into tears reminds of... of uh, of Rachel's crying as well, which is part of the forgiveness narrative in, in the book of Jeremiah anyways. Is the Akiva story an origin story of Avinu Malkinu, or were these 11 words well-known already by then? I think we're meant to understand this to be the origin story. And this gets to the question of like, do we have any evidence that the Talmud precedes the Moxor? We don't really have any evidence because the Moxor traditions that we have are much later than the Talmud. But I think we understand, and, and again, from context with the Moxar, this was drawn in from the story of Rabbi Akiva here. And you have some, uh, some commentaries in the Middle Ages that say, the reason we say in the Moxar, Avinu Malkin, is because Rabbi Akiva said it here and it was effective. They're in the Middle Ages, so who knows what was happening 500 years earlier. But I think we can safely assume that that's the direction that it goes. Now, Leslie's saying reminds us of the importance of prayer from the heart. And the fact that the prescribed prayers are meant to be a springboard for personal heartfelt prayers in our own words. Exactly. I think part of what we assume, and you might assume from the first part of the story uh, of Rabbi Kiva itself, is that you say the words of the Moxer, that's how you achieve forgiveness. You say the Vidui, you beat your chest, that's how you achieve forgiveness. You say Avinu Malkeinu, 
and it brings the rain. But that's actually not what the heavenly voice says. The heavenly voice says, oh, actually, it turns out that this is about the character of the person who's leading the davening. They didn't say, oh, yeah, the, the fixed amida, that's garbage. It's the spontaneous prayer. That's what works. That's not what they said. They, what they said was, there's something about Rabbi Akiva that is different from Rabbi Eliezer, and he's embodying that in some way, and that's what's going to lead to the rain. We're going to just sort of develop that even further as we look at, at the other references here. Um, David says uh, a similar thing, right, that, that the attitude is what, what matters, and um, the extent that Amida might have worked if Rabbi Akiva had said it, right? Could Rabbi Akiva just, whatever he said was going to work because it's about his character and how he behaves in the world more than about what words he's saying. I think that's that's definitely one way to read the story, which uh, which I think um, we're going to see reinforced as we move for, further here. Okay, so just to get get a little bit more color on what does it mean? Remember, Rabbi Akiva is Ma'avir al-Midotav, passes over his Midah, and Rabbi Eliezer is not Ma'avir al-Midotav, is not passing over his Midah. So we have the statement from Rava elsewhere in the Talmud, Kol ha'avir al-Midotav, ma'avirin lo al-kol whoever passes over his midot, his attributes, then ma'avirinlo, for him, it is cast over all of his crimes, all of his sins. Uh, and you remember the, the significance of the word over from last week, we saw it in Atana Tokef. Um, so what do we have here from, from the book of Micah? Nose avon the over al pesha, right? The over al pesha is what God does. God is going to pass over the pesha, pass over, ignore, uh, not pay attention to your crime. That's for somebody. Who does God be- bear uh, uh, bear the sin for? The one that they pass over themselves, this as- aspect of themselves. Now, Raj explains this a little bit uh, here. Amar Bir Amidotav is going to tell us, because again, the word Midah seems to have a positive attribute, a positive association in most contexts, like the 13 attributes of God, and I'm working on my Midot, sort of my, you know, my positive character traits. But Rosh is going to explain, I think, in a helpful linguistic connection to why it's a negative thing. Your midot are your negative thing, and you want to pass over them. So what does Rashi say? What that means is, You're not exacting in measuring out the midah, the measurement, the retaliation, like midah, connected midah, retaliation, but really like... I. I'm tempted to measure you, judge you, and size you up, especially if you're bothering me, right? For those who call me, cause me tsar, those who call, cause me pain and trouble. I measure you, I judge you. But someone who is ma'avir amidotav, he passes over his measurement. He passes over his sizings up. And what does he does? He meniach amidotav, he sets them aside, ve'olechlo, and just moves on. Okay, so that's what Rabbi Akiva is able to do. Rabbi Eliezer is not able to do that. Rabbi Eliezer is He continues to measure and size people up and judge them. Rabbi Akiva, by contrast, is He's the one who can set aside his measurements, set aside his judgment. Now, this is something I think that's very relatable, right? The ways in which we are constantly sizing people up, judging them, and, uh, and acting on those judgments. That's the sort of normal human characteristic, I would say, as we see in other Talmudic stories, where Leander's on the extreme of that. He's very, very into sizing people up and judging them. And Rabbi Akiva is really, really good at setting it aside and specifically setting it aside with Rabbi Eliezer himself. That is to say, there's something about Rabbi Eliezer that Rabbi Akiva, even though he fails, right? You could, the guy that's being judged in this story is Rabbi Eliezer, right? He's the one that everybody starts crying and shouting against. But Rabbi Akiva is not going to size him up, not going to measure him, not going to judge him. Instead, he's going to, to look at him more generously. And that's what we're going to see uh, in the next story. So, okay. So again, where we are, where we are right now, Avinu Malkenu, the thing that Rabbi Akiva says as a result of the Amida not working, even though he's the student, steps in and upstages his teacher. And then the heavenly voice tells us that this is really about a character difference not about magical formula or not even about who's better or worse in general, but Rabbi Akiva embodies the ability to pass over the judgments, the, the measurings, the sizings up, and Rabbi Eliezer is not able to pass over that, that attribute of his own character. 
Okay, now the great thing is we get another story about Avinu Malkeinu, or at least the same, a version of, this, of the same story, not exactly using the words Avinu Malkeinu, in the Yerushalmi. Uh, and here we, we go a, a whole other extra, <laughs> extra length in unpacking this narrative that, again, gets telescoped into our recitation of, in the Matzah. So let's look at that. So here we are in Masechetani, um, the, 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 the tractate on fasting uh, in, the, in the Yerushalmi version. Let's take a sip of water. Plan A is Rabbi Eliezer made a fast, but no rain came. No rain fell. Rabbi Akiva made a fast, and the rain fell. Okay, that's simple. Um, right? In, in the Bavli version, it's about the Amida, not about the fast. Uh, but it's the same result. Rabbi Eliezer fails to bring the rain. Rabbi Akiva succeeds in bringing the rain. Now, in the Bavli, we get this plot element of people are complaining against Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, and then we hear the voice from, from heaven that comes out and says, no, 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 this is the, the reason why this, this went down in this way. In the Ushalman, we don't get a voice from heaven. Rather, we get instead the voice of Rabbi Akiva himself. So let's read out what happens. After the, the rain comes, Rabbi Akiva's successful fast takes place and has effect. Rabbi Akiva then enters and said before them, we, apparently there are other people here. We didn't know the, this in the story until now. Rabbi Akiva says before the, the crowd that's there, I will explain it in a parable. I'm going to tell you a mashal. I'm going to explain it as a story. And listen to this crazy parable that he comes up with. What is it like? This is like a king who had two daughters. Now, you know, in all rabbinic parables, the king is God. So let's just see how this works out. A king who had two daughters. One of the daughters was Hatsufa, was chutzpidik, was brazen. And one of the daughters was kshera, was proper, was kosher, okay? So a king has two daughters, one's chutzpanik, one's kosher. When the brazen one, when the chutzpanik one wanted to enter before him, before the king, he said, give her what she wants so that she may go away, right? Get her out of here. Just, you know, you have like that nagging kid who's like, can I have some candy? Can I have some candy? Yeah, here, take the candy. Just stop bothering me, okay? That's the brazen daughter. When the proper one, when the kshera wanted to enter before him, the king was patient because he liked hearing her pleas. Okay, that's the end of the parable that Rabbi Akiva tells us. Now, let's unpack the parable and assign the roles here just to be clear. The king is God. The chutzpahnik one, the chutzpahnik daughter is Rabbi Akiva. And the Kshira daughter, the, the kosher daughter is Rabbi Eliezer. How do I know this? Because according to the parable, whose prayer is answered? Who gets something? The chutzpahnik daughter gets something, right? The rain comes for Rabbi Akiva because he's the chutzpahnik daughter. Why does he get answered? Only because God wants him slash the daughter to leave, right? God wants him out of the way. Why is Rabbi Eliezer not answered? because God loves hearing the pleas of Rabbi Eliezer. And therefore, if you are beloved by God, says this story and this theology, if you're beloved by God, God doesn't answer, answer your prayers. And if you are not beloved by God, God does answer your prayers. Now, this is a crazy theology. This is like a religion that nobody will sign up for, right? It's like a perverse incentive uh, situation here. And indeed, the Talmud immediately... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. A very manipulative portrait of parenting. Uh, the Talmud immediately asks this question. Is it possible to say this? Could you possibly say that God answers the prayers of the ones that God doesn't love? And God refuses to answer the prayers of the ones that God does love because God loves listening to their prayers and doesn't want them to stop? That sounds kind of sick. Are you really allowed to say that? And the answer is no, that's not how it works. So how come Rabbi Akiva said it? Rather, because he didn't want to uh, to have a chilul hashem. He didn't want to uh, have blasphemy of the house of Rabbi Eliezer, right? There's a situation on, on the ground here, which is to say that Rabbi Akiva is successful. Rabbi Eliezer is not successful. Rabbi Akiva senses that unless he comes up with some story to explain why he was successful, then everyone's going to go after Rabbi Eliezer and say, you know, you're not the one who, you know, who, who's effective. Uh, that happened in the Bavli. They started to do that. 
And so Rabbi Akiva sort of jumps in and, as Daniel's saying, demonstrating his chutzpahic nature, comes up with this chutzpahic story where he's the chutzpahic one. And he sort of, you know, takes the fall, as it were, uh, even though he gets the job done on the rain. And he's doing this in order to protect the honor of Rabbi Eliezer. That's where we see uh, this plot thicken. So what we have here is not only a story of the character of the prayer leader matters, but that a prayer leader, even in the moment in their prayer, how they relate to the other one who is not where they are anymore is actually part of the answer of why they are uh, listened to by God or how in some ways they're modeling the behavior that they want God to engage in. This is this is almost like one of the many windows into the relationship between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Eliezer is a very strong character in the Talmud and Rabbi Akiva, top three rabbis in Jewish history, is his student. And we see that even though Rabbi Akiva, the student, bests the teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, in certain ways, he is unwilling to say, you know, there's a new new generation in town and you could take a hike and you couldn't even bring the rain when I could. That's not how he re- relates to the older generation, uh, but rather he's working very hard, even in a theologically um, perverse way, working very hard to preserve the honor of his teacher and the previous generation as he's playing this out. And all this is wrapped up, I'm arguing, into the recitation of Avinu Malkeinu for us. So when we're saying Avinu Malkeinu, you know, are we embodying Rabbi Akiva? And if we're embodying Rabbi Akiva, to what extent are we watching out for the honor of someone else, the honor of the has-been, the honor of the previous generation that can't get the job done anymore? That's part of what is wrapped up, I think, in some of the context of the story here of Avinu Malkeinu. There's a very famous story of Rabbi Eliezer being excommunicated from the rabbinic circle. And Rabbi Akiva is the one who goes and visits him and informs him that he's been excommunicated. Only Rabbi Akiva can do that. He's the one who has that special bond. When Rabbi Eliezer is on his deathbed after he's been excommunicated and nobody has visited him or learned from him for decades, Rabbi Akiva is the one who visits him on his deathbed. And when he dies, Rabbi Akiva calls out and says, you know, my father, my father, Avi, Avi, quoting uh, what Elisha says when Elijah gets taken up to heaven. So there's a very strong and sort of lifelong bond between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer, which is very poignant, I think, in some ways, in this moment of Rabbi Eliezer is ineffective when Rabbi Akiva is instead effective. He's able to bring the rain. And yet they maintain this connection throughout their lives, Rabbi Eliezer never is mavir al-midotav. He never gives up judging people. And in some ways, even on his deathbed, very poignant scene, Rabbi Akiva says, uh, and the students who come to visit him, Rabbi Akiva is among them, the students say, Rabbi, tell us what's going to happen to us. And he says, you're all going to die. And Rabbi Akiva says, what about me? And Rabbi Eliezer says, you're going to have the worst of it. And what's so painful about that story is it's true. Rabbi Ezer is correct. Rabbi Akiva is martyred and he does have the worst of it. And Rabbi Eliezer is the, like he's unable to, uh, uh, to separate himself from Emet. He, he holds truth. He speaks truth. And sometimes that's an amazing thing. And sometimes that's not what you want to hear. You know, you don't want to hear the truth. And especially in a world in which we're being judged on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you want the person who's going to be on the, the throne of mercy and not on the throne of, of judgment or truth. And that's part of the dynamic that you that you see here. Yes, this is the same Rabbi Ezer as the story of Tanur Shalachnai. That's the same Rabbi Ezer. In that story is when he's excommunicated. And then when Rabbi Akiva goes to, uh, goes to inform him of that. One of the ways in which God also is wrapped up in this question of Ma'avir al-Midotav and we're going to see that uh, in, in a brief story. And then we're going to look at what does it mean to call God father? And what does it mean to call God king? And how does that relate to our own experience of God uh, on the high holidays and, and every day? Okay, so let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of how Ma'avir al-Midotav relates to God's, uh, God's own character and God's own struggles. Okay, so what you have here is an amazing, <laughs> an amazing Talmudic claim, which is that God praised the Amida, just like we pray the Amida. God praised the Amida. And how do I know that God uh, praised the Amida? 
Because it says, and we're going to read this verse in, in the Machzor, it says in Isaiah, I'm going to bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them rejoice in my house of prayer, tfilati, or more accurately, the house of my prayer. So, are not the house of their prayer, but the house of my prayer. Now, we know the rabbis understand tfilah as amida. So, in Isaiah, it says, in the house of my prayer, that could be something very general, but the rabbis read that as in the house of, of my amida. If God has an amida, wouldn't you like to know what the words of God's amida are? And lo and behold, we get a report from Marzutra. Uh, Rav Zutra Bartuvia says in the name of Rav, what does God say in God's amida? My matzli, what does God pray? Flota. Amar of Zutra Bartuvia, Marav, Yehiratzon Milfanai. May it be my will. May it be the will before me, as opposed to Yehiratzon Milfanecha. May it be my will. What is my will? Sheyichbeshu Rachamai et Kaasai. May my mercy conquer my anger. And now here's our resonance. Viagolu Rachamai Almidotai. And may my Rachamim, may my mercy roll over, but you can see also here the, the image of like a galim, like, like waves, like roll over like a wave, like crash over. May my mercy crash over, roll over, conquer my midot. There it is. Midot as a negative word, right? God wants to overcome God's midot. This does not mean the midot that we say, you know, God is God is gracious and, and, and merciful. That's not what we're talking about, but rather it's a synonym for cause, it's a synonym for anger, right? The midot, those measurings, those measurements, those sizings up that not only people do, but God apparently does as well. And God is praying in this daily prayer. I hope my rachamim, I hope my mercy beats my anger. I hope my mercy beats my judgments. And I will behave with my children through the attribute of rachamim, of mercy, and I shall go above the letter of the law with them, right? Din is the letter of the law. You could be judged by the letter of the law, but none of us would get very far because we're humans. And, but we want God and God wants God, God's self to go above the letter of the law, to go beyond the letter of the law, to be merciful. And that's what God's prayer is. So when we see that Rabbi Akiva is Ma'avir al-Midotah, that he is the one who passes over his Midot, his sizings up his measurements, his judgings, in some ways, Rabbi Akiva is modeling and behaving in the way that we want God and God wants God to behave as well. Uh, and in that way, sort of the prayer leader is the, the canary in the coal mine, as it were, on the, on the are we going to make it through today? Because if God is going to be like Rabbi Eliezer and only focusing on truth and only focusing on judgment, and not Ma'avir Amidotav, then we're all cooked. But if God is going to be more like Rebbe Akiva and is Ma'avir Amidotav, which apparently God is praying for every day, this is an issue that God has and a struggle that God has, according to this, uh, this report from Rav. So then, you know, then we get to, uh, to survive another year and we get to benefit from God's mercy. Okay, so all this is wrapped up in the recitation of Avinu Malkeinu, that prayer that sort of reminds us that we're meant to be like Rabbi Akiva, Ma'avir Amidotav. We're supposed to pass over our judgments, and God is hopefully going to do that as well. Uh, in our last 10 minutes, I want to take a look at the words Avinu and Malkeinu and see how that plays out. It, you know, in certain times of Jewish history, nothing was more natural and beautiful than to call God Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king. And in other times in Jewish history, some of those meta metaphors are hard to get behind. So I want to play out for you and just go a bit deeper into each of these for a moment. So let's take a look at what it means to call God our father. Now, of course, calling God our father, God as the father, is in some ways a, um, a daring move after the emergence of Christianity. But the, uh, the notion that God is our father is something that predates, uh, you know, Christianity and, and, of course, so many things in Christianity. They get it from somewhere. So you see in the verse in Deuteronomy, we say, Banim atem ladonai Elohechem. You are the children to Adonai, your God. Yudei your God. You are the children to Adonai, your God. Banim atem. So 
there's a debate about what this means. And it's a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir. Um, this is a few generations after Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir have a debate about what does it mean to say that God is our father? If, we are, if we're the children, God is the father, what does it mean? Or, or as translated in more modern liturgies, God is the parent. Uh, so Rabbi Yehuda says, Im nohagim atem minhag banim, atem banim. If you behave like children, that's not a, a that's not a put down. That's like if you behave like in the relationship in which God is the father and you are the children, so you are the children. But if you don't believe, behave in that way, but in love, if you don't behave in that way, then actually this bond is over. You are no longer children. Okay, so the relationship that's described in calling us children and God the parent is a conditional relationship, according to Rabbi Yehuda. You can violate that, and it's a metaphor that works as long as you're behaving correctly. Rabbi Meir has a different take. Rabbi Meir says beautifully, Rabbi Meir Omer, whether this or that, like no matter what, you are always children to the Lord your God. This, of course, is the power of the metaphor. What it means to say that God is our, our parent is there's nothing that we can do that breaks that bond. There's absolutely, just definitionally, there's nothing you can do to no longer be the child of your parent, okay? And Rabbi Meir is playing that out to its logical end, and he brings a few proof texts, right? He says... Yes, you can misbehave and you're still called children. You're still called buddy and you're still in that relationship, right? It says in Jeremiah, they are foolish children and they are children without faith and they are children of evildoers, perverse children. So there are all these examples in which Israel is called banim, uh, you know, and, and all these terrible adjectives describing what kind of children they are. But nevertheless, says Rabbi Mayer, they are children. So part of the power of the metaphor here, at least the Rebbe Mayer's read, is it's non-conditional. The whole point of calling God Avinu is nothing I can do can break the bond of relationship that I have with you. And unlike Rebbe Udo says, this is a nice metaphor that works as long as it works, Rebbe Mayer says, no, the metaphor works always. There's no end to the metaphor. We are all, we're not the rejected children and superseded by another group of children because we're not behaving well. No. No matter what, we are the children. And by calling God Avinu, we are reinforced. I mean, by saying all the terrible things that we've done and asking for forgiveness, we're basically on the Rebbe Mayer side of the ledger by saying, even though we stopped behaving like children, even though we violated the covenant, we are nevertheless calling you our father. And in that way, we are reminding you that this is a non-conditional bond, an unconditional bond that, that we're working out. Okay, that's one rabbinic approach to what it means to call God Avinu, uh, right, Shuvubani, right? Come back, even though you have been wayward, uh, Shuvavinu. Okay, let's take a look at Malkeinu. Now, Malkeinu, if you have a problem with Melech, if you have a problem with calling God king, what I want to argue here in our last few minutes is you're in good company. Uh, now, I've taught this with some British folks in the room, and they they love the, the royalty and they love the royal images. And so if God as king works for you, I don't want to take that away from you. But if God as king is a troubling metaphor and that has certain um, associations that you, you can't really bring into your conception of God, I just want to say that is that is something that the rabbis also shared, at least in some texts. Um, so even though they're using the term melech to describe God, malkenu, melech haolam, all that, what, what I'm going to argue is they are saying whatever you think a human king is, God is the opposite. So think of your worst attributes of human kings, list those attributes, and then I'm going to tell you that God has none of those attributes. Those are the opposite of how God behaves, okay? Let's get a couple of examples here so we can see it playing out. Melech Basar Badam, a king of flesh and blood. If a person has a burn on him, or if a person asks after his welfare, it's a degradation to him, and he does not respond, okay? If a king is approached by somebody who has a bodily, you know, burn, some deformed part of the body, or is not the right socioeconomic status, then 
The king does not respond. You're not worthy of my response. That's a flesh and blood king way of behaving. But God is not so. Right? Everybody is accepted before God, and God says, praise me. That is to say, God wants the connection and the praise and the relationship of every person. Um, and so, unlike a human king, of which only the beautiful people and only the rich people can show up and be in dialogue and in relationship with the human king, God doesn't need that. God wants everybody to be in relationship with him. Let's take a look at another example. I love, I love this example. It's based on a word, which is an opening word to a number of the Psalms. Right, the Psalms begin. Uh, many of the Psalms begin lamanatzeh, which is a hard word to translate. Often translated in modern translations as for the conductor, for the leader, something about the musical uh, instructions around this Psalm. But lamanatzeh means to be victorious, to win, to beat someone else. Uh, this is fodder for the midrash. So they say lamanatzeh. Actually, it's not lamanatzeh, but rather laminutzah, not for the victor but for the vanquished, for the defeated, for the one who was beaten, which you can do in Hebrew because passive and active is just a matter of changing the vowels, which is not about changing the letters. So la menutzach, for the, for the defeated one. Le mishau menutzach mi briotav, from the one who is defeated by his creations. Now we get the contrast to the human flesh and blood king. Melech basar vadam, a flesh and blood king, if you upset him, then he gets angry, right? Human kings don't like to be beaten. Uh, they don't like to, to have other people be victorious. You beat God and God is happy. As it says, what's my proof for this? I would have destroyed the Jewish people, says in Psalm 106. I would have destroyed them. Lule Moshe Bichiro had Moshe, his chosen one, not stood in the breach. What does this mean? God had a plan after the golden calf sin to destroy the Jewish people. By the way, the golden calf sin is the primary sin of Yom Kippur. You just sort of follow up the, the calendar. Yom Kippur is the day in which we get the tablets after the golden calf sin. It's the, it's the reconciliation after the golden calf sin. So they sin with the golden calf. God wants to destroy them. But Moshe stands in the breach and argues for the Jewish people to survive, even though they had violated the most basic law of the Ten Commandments. And indeed, Moshe wins the day. God listens to Moshe. The Jewish people are not destroyed. Therefore, God is defeated. God is defeated and is happy because God actually didn't want to destroy the Jewish people. God wanted Moshe to defeat him. And in that way, God is the opposite of a melech basar vadam, of a flesh and blood king. So what I'm arguing here is that when we say avinu malkeinu, the melech that we're saying in malkeinu is whatever sort of you know petty and despot and tyrannical associations we have with the word king, yes, we should have those associations and then know that God is the opposite of those associations, that God is the opposite of the flesh and blood kings. You can have all the, the king metaphors and just know that we're going against them. Now you're saying, well, how can we use the king metaphor uh, at all, right? Martin is, is asking that. And I think that's a good question. I think it gets to the basic problem of language, which is to say that we are only limited by the human metaphors that we can grasp, right? It's very hard to describe God in a real way. And so we're gonna go for something like, what's the most powerful person that I can come up with? Oh, it's a king. But then I have to backtrack from that and say, you know, whatever you think a king stands for, God is actually the opposite. And in that way, you're both sort of creating an image and undoing the image at the same time, which just speaks to some of the complexity of using human language to describe God. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Analia Burstein-Simpson, and Susan Pilevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Ellie Confer. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.